Chapter 4 of the General Instruction of the Roman Missal describes the right for receiving Holy Communion at Mass. According to these rubrics, it is not permitted for the faithful to take the consecrated bread or the sacred chalice by themselves. Holy Communion is to receive standing unless an individual wishes to receive while kneeling. The consecrated host may be received either on the tongue or in the hand at the discretion of each communicant. Communion can be distributed under both kinds, and if there is truly a large number of communicants and no deacon or acolyte is available, the priest may call upon extraordinary ministers to assist him. Those are the rules today per the third edition of the Roman Missal, published in the year 2010. But how did we get there? In this episode, I'll be taking a trek through the 2,000-year history of how the faithful have received Holy Communion. God bless America. God love you. I want these to be my first words of greeting to you. They will be the concluding words on each broadcast. I am not the Catholic candidate for president. I am the Democratic Party's candidate for president. Annuncio opis gaudium Abemus papam. You've embarked on a Catholic history trek. The Eucharist was foreshadowed in the Old Testament and fulfilled by Jesus Christ with the first Mass, the Last Supper. The Gospels record that Jesus took bread, blessed it, broke it, and gave it to his twelve apostles. Jesus said, This is my body, and gave them the bread. And he said, Drink for this is the blood of the new covenant. So we know that the first time the Holy Eucharist was received, the twelve received both the body and blood of Jesus, although we do not know how the apostles received the Eucharist. But this doesn't mean we can't speculate. In the 1906 book, How Christ Said the First Mass, the Irish-born New York priest, Father James Maher, contended the Last Supper was celebrated like the Passover meal. As such, he described Jesus breaking off a piece of bread for each and laying it in their hands as per the Passover rite, and then passing the chalice to each of the apostles. Another description of the details of the Last Supper can be found in the private revelations of the Catholic nun, stigmatist, and mystic, Blessed Anne Catherine Emmerich. And while it's often advisable to take private revelations with a grain of salt, her description mentions... Jesus presented the bread first to Peter, next to John. He then administered the blessed sacrament to the other apostles, who approached two by two. He made Peter and John drink from the chalice, which he held in his hand, and then placed it again on the table. John poured the divine blood from the chalice into these smaller cups, and Peter presented them to the apostles, two of whom drank together out of the same cup. Her account does not specify if the apostles received on the tongue or in the hand, or if they stood or knelt, but if one reads the entirety of her account, it closely resembles the Mass, so one could reasonably assume they received in the same manner as was done in the Mass of the 19th century, although that's mere speculation on my part. We can also look at the Near East customs of Jesus' time. Instead of individual servings, it was customary to have one common dish from which all would eat. We see this described in the Gospel account when Jesus forewarns the one who dips his hand with him in the dish shall betray him. Another custom was for a loved one or dear friend 
to sometimes take food and place it directly into the mouth of their beloved. To Western listeners, that may sound bizarre, although we do have a similar tradition at wedding receptions when the bride and groom feed each other the first piece of the wedding cake. This tradition of one feeding a beloved can also be seen in the 16th century painting Last Supper by Tintorino, which features the apostles receiving the Eucharist from Jesus in the mouth. Ultimately, there just isn't enough evidence for us to conclusively say how the apostles received Holy Communion at the first Mass, other than they received reverently, and they received both the Eucharistic body and blood of our Lord. As we move into the first and second centuries, we find a strong belief in the real presence of Jesus in the Eucharist, which is taught by St. Ignatius of Antioch, St. Justin Martyr, St. Irenaeus, and many other early church fathers. We also find an emphasis on the reverence due to the Eucharist. The Didache teaches it is only for the baptized. Origen warns to exercise caution, lest a particle of the host should fall and perish. And Pope St. Sixtus I decreed the sacred vessels were only to be handled by those consecrated to the Lord. And in the 3rd and 4th centuries, we find some written descriptions of how Christians received the Eucharist. In his 55th epistle concerning the martyrs, St. Cyprian of Carthage wrote, The hand which has received the Lord's body may embrace the Lord himself, hereafter to receive from the Lord the reward of heavenly crowns. A century later, St. Cyril of Jerusalem wrote in his 5th mystagogical catechesis, In approaching, therefore, come not with your wrists extended or your fingers spread, but make your left hand a throne for the right, as to receive a king. And having hollowed your palm, receive the body of Christ, saying over it, Amen. So then, after having carefully hollowed your eyes by the touch of the holy body, partake of it, giving heed lest you lose any portion thereof. Then, after you have partaken of the body of Christ, draw near also the cup of his blood, not stretching forth your hands, but bending, and saying with an air of worship and reverence, Amen. And while the moisture is still upon your lips, touch it with your hands and hollow your eyes and brow and the other organs of your sense. Theodore of Mopsuetia describes a similar practice, how the right hand is placed atop the left hand, and after receiving the Eucharistic body of Jesus, the communicant touches it to their eyes and kisses it before consuming it. These lines from St. Cyprian and Theodore speak of receiving communion in the hand, but it's worth noting they describe something entirely different than what is done today. Today, when Catholics receive the Eucharist in the hand, they receive it in their left hand and pick it up with the fingers of the right hand and place it in the mouth. This is not what the early Christians did. They dared not touch the Eucharist with the less noble left hand, and they also blessed their senses with the Eucharistic body and blood. Bishop Athanasius Schneider further comments on these practices of the early church in his books Dominus Est and Christus Vincit. He explains how it wasn't uncommon to lay a communion cloth over the hand so the recipient would not directly touch the Holy Sacrament, and so any fragments could be easily gathered. This communion cloth was especially prevalent when women received the Eucharistic body of Jesus. And when the Eucharist was placed in the palm of the right hand, the faithful would then reverently bow their head to take the sacrament directly into the mouth from their palm. Bishop Schneider explains these early Christians 
did not grab it with their fingers and place it in their mouth as is common today. He says, such a practice was unknown in the history of the Catholic Church, and even the followers of Martin Luther dared not touch the Eucharist with their fingers, but grabbing at the host with one's fingers was an invention of John Calvin. And if you recall, Calvin did not believe Christ was physically present in the Eucharist. He rejected both Catholic transubstantiation and the even lesser Lutheran consubstantiation. Receiving communion in the hand is also spoken of by St. Basil. In his 93rd letter, he explains how the laity giving Holy Communion to themselves is not a serious offense in certain instances, possibly implying it otherwise would be a serious offense. The exceptions he provides are when the laity keep the Eucharist at home to receive it frequently, during times of persecution, and the isolated desert monastics, all instances where the faithful have no access to a priest to give them the Eucharist. By the end of the 4th century, the church was no longer persecuted and underground. The faithful now had better access to priests, meaning many of the exceptions preventing communion in the hand from being a grave offense no longer existed. And with an emphasis on the reverence due to our Eucharistic Lord, the church began to abandon communion in the hand and shifted to communion on the tongue. Local councils began to ban communion in the hand, even bringing the penalty of excommunication for those who continued to receive in the hand. The earliest examples are likely the Council of Saragossa in 380 and of Toledo in 400. A few decades later, Pope St. Leo the Great referred to Christ's body and blood as something which is taken in the mouth. Additional councils continued to ban the practice, and by the early medieval period, reception on the mouth had pretty much become the norm for the universal church. St. Thomas Aquinas explained, out of reverence towards this sacrament, nothing touches it but what is consecrated. Hence, the corporal and chalice are consecrated, and likewise the priest's hands for touching the sacrament. Later, the Council of Trent reinforced this teaching. In order to safeguard the dignity of the sacrament, the laity are to only receive from the consecrated hands of the priest, who alone is to handle or touch the sacred vessels, the linen, and other instruments used for the Mass. One other medieval development was the laity only receiving the body of our Lord at Mass, with the priest alone receiving communion under both bread and wine. While there were some cases dating back to the early church, when the faithful would only receive the bread, such as when the Eucharist was brought into a home or given to the sick or children, these were exceptions to the norm. The change came about out of reverence to our Eucharistic Lord, such as the potential for spilling the precious blood of Jesus. In the previously mentioned book, How Christ Said the First Mass, Father Maher claimed, In the early church, the chalice was thus passed to all who received communion, till abuses forced a change of discipline. Another motivation possibly driving this change was that many of the laity rarely received the Eucharist when they attended Mass. This issue became so problematic that the Fourth Lateran Council required the faithful to receive the sacrament of the Eucharist at least once per year at Easter, a requirement which still exists some 800 years later. The 12th century French theologian Petrus Cantor described the reception of the body alone had become the custom of the church by his time. Local councils began to make this the norm, and it was officially codified at the Council of Constance in the year 1415, which decreed that Holy Communion should only be distributed under the form of bread to the faithful. 
limiting reception of Holy Communion to the body of Christ and not his blood, spawned a theological debate known as the Utraquist controversy, taking their name from the Latin term sub utraque, meaning under both, the Utraquist held that Holy Communion must be received under both kinds, bread and wine. They believed that neither the bread alone nor the wine alone contained the fullness of the sacramental graces available in Holy Communion, and therefore, to withhold the cup was a sacrilegious abuse which denied God's grace to the laity, also called calixtines from the Latin word calix, meaning cup or chalice, their position was rejected as heretical encountered by the most prominent Catholic theologians of the time, Thomas Aquinas, Bonaventure, Cajetan, Bellarmine, Suarez, and so forth, who all taught that Jesus' body, blood, soul, and divinity was fully present in either species. The Council of Trent would later affirm this, teaching that communion under either bread or wine was sufficient to receive God's sacramental grace. From the early medieval period onward, the practice of receiving the Holy Eucharist was to receive on the tongue from the hands of the priest. But there were some interesting exceptions worth a brief mention in which Catholics would receive the Eucharist by means of Eucharistic utensils. The most common of these is the Eucharistic spoon, which is still used in the Eastern Rites of the Church for reception by intinction when the body of Christ is dipped into the blood. There's very little in the historical record highlighting the introduction of Eucharistic spoons in the West. It's assumed they probably appeared around the 8th century and disappeared around the time when the laity stopped receiving under both kinds. The Eucharistic spoon I just mentioned was sized like a regular tablespoon, but there was a long-handled Eucharistic spoon introduced during times of plague, which the priest would use to administer the sacrament. The eminent 17th century French doctor, Francois Rachin, specified the handle to be at least 20 inches long. Another Eucharistic instrument for times of pestilence was the Eucharistic pinchers or forceps. These were originally used to dip the host into the chalice for intinction and became more prevalent during the Avignon papacy. And while they fell out of use when the Pope returned to Rome, they were retained for priests to administer the Eucharist to victims of plague and leprosy. In the West, there was also the fistula, which was essentially a metal straw to drink the blood of Christ from the chalice. It seems to have originated no later than the time of Pope St. Gregory the Great in the 6th century and was mentioned in the rubrics of the Mass by the 7th century. The use of the fistula faded when the laity no longer received the blood of Christ at Mass, although it's been suggested that it was used in some Cistercian monasteries into the 18th century. Even though it's no longer common, the use of the fistula is still a viable option for Catholics. In the latest edition of the General Instruction of the Roman Missal, paragraph 245 states, The blood of the Lord may be received either by drinking from the chalice directly, or by intinction, or by means of a tube, or a spoon. And while I wouldn't recommend walking up to communion with a bendy straw, technically it does seem to be permissible. From the medieval period onward, the Catholic laity received the body of Christ only, received on the tongue, and received from the priest. But in the period following the Second Vatican Council, all three of these practices would see drastic changes. After seven or more centuries of the blood of Christ being reserved for the priest celebrating the Mass, communion under both kinds was restored to the laity. It was reintroduced in Sacrosanctum Concilium, 
the Constitution on the Sacred Liturgy, produced at the Second Vatican Council. The Council Fathers provided a very narrow window for its reintroduction, such as a newly ordained priest at his ordination mass, a newly professed religious at their profession of vows, or a newly baptized catechumen, although subsequent editions of the Roman Missal expanded its availability beyond these very limited instances. For over 1,500 years, the universal norm was for the laity to receive communion on the tongue with only the consecrated hands and vessels touching our Eucharistic Lord, but that would change shortly after the close of the Second Vatican Council when clergy in Holland began to distribute communion in the hand. Introduced under the banner of ecumenism, the Dutch imitated the prevalent Protestant model. Keep in mind the Protestant model had been developed several centuries earlier as a rejection of transubstantiation, that is, the Catholic doctrine that the Eucharist becomes the body and blood of Jesus Christ. Before long, this Dutch practice had spread to parts of Germany, Belgium, and France. Pope Paul VI in the Vatican intervened, attempting to stop this unapproved practice, but the disobedient priests and bishops refused to subject themselves to the Pope's authority on this matter and continued this abuse. Apparently unable to stop the disobedient clergy, in 1969, Pope Paul VI pulled the bishops of the Universal Church on the topic of communion in the hand. He asked three questions. Essentially, should communion in the hand be permitted? Should small groups experiment with this practice? And would the faithful accept communion in the hand willingly? To all three questions, the majority of the bishops responded no. A couple months later, the Congregation for Divine Worship issued the instruction Memoriale Domini, in which they presented the poll results and explained that reception on the tongue was the normative and official way of receiving Holy Communion in the Catholic Church. But their instruction also allowed for this disobedient practice to continue, under certain conditions. Those conditions the abuse had to already be taking place, the local bishops had to openly discuss the issue, and those bishops had to vote two-thirds in favor of communion in the hand by secret ballot. If each of those conditions were met, the results could be submitted to the Vatican for approval. This instruction also explained that if approved, this new optional practice of communion in the hand would not abolish or replace communion on the tongue, which was to remain the proper way of receiving communion in the church. It could be speculated that, after failing to force the disobedient priests and bishops to end this novel abuse, Pope Paul may have believed this instruction would accomplish what he could not, limiting it to areas where it was already taking place should have limited its spread, and requiring two-thirds of the bishops to approve could have been seen as an insurmountable obstacle. But if this was the Pope's strategy, it failed miserably. Following the release of Memoriale Domini, many other countries began to appeal to the Vatican for approval to implement communion in the hand. So in 1973, the Congregation for Divine Worship issued another instruction, Mencia Caritatis, which reemphasized that this optional practice of communion in the hand must be done with supreme reverence and utmost caution towards the Eucharist. Basically, that the utmost care must be given so no Eucharistic particles would fall or be scattered, and that the laity would be sufficiently catechized, so that allowing for the new option would not reduce belief in the real presence and would not become an occasion for Eucharistic profanation. In the United States, 
just one year after Memoriale Domini was issued, the bishops took a vote on communion in the hand, even though the abuse was not already taking place. The majority of the American bishops voted against it. Three years later, in 1973, the U.S. bishops again voted on communion in the hand, and again, the vote failed to reach the required two-thirds majority approval. By 1977, a total of 53 countries had received an indult to offer communion in the hand. When the United States Catholic Conference voted for a third time on the practice, the bishops gathered in Chicago, held strong, and again rejected communion in the hand. But in 1977, the U.S. Catholic Conference was led by Archbishop Bernadin, best known for his controversial seamless garment theory. Bernadin was a champion of communion in the hand and was hellbent on seeing it approved under his leadership. After this third vote failed to approve of communion in the hand, Bernadin ignored the requirement for discussion and for secret ballot. He sent mail-in ballots to bishops who had not attended the conference. After he added these last-minute mail-in votes to the official vote, he was able to achieve the result he wanted. Interestingly, the vote may not have even taken place. Bishop Romeo Blanchett of Joliet had made a motion to not even hold a vote on the grounds that Memoriale Domini specified the abuse had to already be taking place. But Cardinal Brendan overruled the bishop and proceeded with the vote. So on June 16th of 1977, the United States received approval from the Vatican for communion in the hand, a practice which would be strictly optional and only implemented at the discretion of each local bishop. The third major change after the Second Vatican Council was the introduction of lay extraordinary ministers of the Eucharist. They first appeared in the 1969 document Fidei Custos, which allowed for them if the priest was unable to administer the sacrament because of poor health, advanced age, or he was called away on other pastoral duties, or if Mass would become unduly long. Four years later, the Vatican issued the previously mentioned Immensiae Caritatis, which essentially reiterated Fidei Custos. A suitable extraordinary minister could be appointed if the priest was unavailable due to age, illness, or ministry, or if Mass would become unduly prolonged, cases of genuine necessity. That same year, the Sacred Congregation for Divine Worship issued Holy Communion and Worship of the Eucharist Outside Mass. In this document, they claimed the priest and deacon were the ministers of Holy Communion. A properly instituted acolyte could redistribute the Holy Eucharist in cases where the priest or deacon were not available due to age, illness, or if Mass would become unreasonably long, and in a very special case, a lay minister could be used if no priest, deacon, or acolyte was available. In 1980, Pope John Paul II issued a letter reminding the faithful the Eucharist is the primary reason for the sacramental priesthood. The priest with his consecrated hands has the privilege and primary responsibility for the sacred species. If communion must be distributed by a non-priest, the Pope emphasized the order would then be deacon, after him an acolyte, ideally the acolyte would be a seminarian on his way to ordination, and finally, a layperson, only in the case of a justified need and only after they had been adequately prepared. Pope John Paul II also lamented in this document what he called a deplorable lack of respect towards the Eucharistic species in countries where communion in the hand had been introduced. 
he pointed out that priests, and not just the laity, were guilty of reprehensible behavior. As an aside, St. Mother Teresa must have been witness to these abuses in her world travels, as she once opined to Father George Rutler, Wherever I go in the whole world, the thing that makes me the saddest is watching people receive communion in the hand. Later that same year, the Congregation for the Sacraments and Divine Worship issued a document titled Instructions Concerning Worship of the Eucharistic Mystery. It was a follow-up to the Pope's letter. The document highlighted varied and frequent abuses which had crept into the Mass only one decade after Pope Paul VI's new Mass was introduced. Some of the abuses they highlighted included lay people distributing communion instead of the priest, needlessly celebrating Mass outside of churches, and using unapproved prayers in the Mass. The document also mentioned that lay, extraordinary ministers could be used only if a priest, deacon, or acolyte were unavailable due to age or illness or if Mass would become excessively long. More recently, in 1997, the Vatican released an instruction titled On Certain Questions Regarding the Collaboration of Non-Ordained Faithful in the Sacred Ministry of Priest. This instruction reminded the faithful that the bishop, priest, and deacon are the ordinary ministers of the Eucharist, an acolyte or similar is an extraordinary minister, and only in cases of true necessity could the laity serve as an extraordinary minister after having been appointed by the bishop. The document mentioned the priest could also appoint a lay extraordinary minister, but only in exceptional, unforeseen situations. This Vatican document reiterated that lay extraordinary ministers were only to be utilized when a priest was truly unavailable or mass would become excessively long. While each of these documents consistently provided a very narrow exception when the laity could serve as extraordinary ministers, they never clarified if excessively prolonging the mass meant five or six minutes or something more excessive. As an engineer, I decided to calculate how much time is saved by the addition of extraordinary ministers. For the sake of time, I'll skip over the details of my calculations and say that at a full Sunday mass at a typical parish, the addition of an extraordinary minister would reduce the time of distributing communion by about six minutes. Over the past half century, many have asked if these recent changes were beneficial. For example, the documents which allowed for communion in the hand instructed no Eucharistic particles should fall or be scattered, there should be no occasions for Eucharistic profanation, and the laity must be sufficiently catechized so this new option would not reduce faith in the real presence. So, how are we doing on those points? Experiments with unconsecrated hosts have shown Eucharistic particles are easily and abundantly lost when receiving in the hand. As far as profanation, since the introduction of communion in the hand, Eucharistic hosts have been found in hymnals, found on church floors, found online for sale, and have even found their way to satanic black masses. And whether the laity have been sufficiently catechized to not lose faith in the real presence, in 1950, 87% of Catholics believed in the real presence. By 2019, a Pew Research poll showed that number was down to 31%. Some contend these changes in how the faithful receive Holy Communion have directly led to this loss of faith, while others view them as merely coincidental, blaming other factors like irreverent worship or poor catechesis. Regardless of the reasons for this diminished Eucharistic faith among Catholics, 
The U.S. bishops are attempting to reverse this trend with a national Eucharistic revival. Begun on the Feast of Corpus Christi in 2022, the revival will culminate with a National Eucharistic Congress at Indianapolis in the year 2024. For more on the history of Eucharistic Congresses, see episode 20. And speaking of Corpus Christi, this episode is being released in time for the Feast of Corpus Christi in 2023. So where does this leave us in 2023, nearly 2,000 years after beginning our Eucharistic trek? Chapter 4 of the latest General Instruction of the Roman Missal describes the rite of receiving Holy Communion at Mass. It instructs, The faithful may receive communion kneeling or standing, and the faithful may choose to receive either on the tongue or, were permitted, in the hand. So, any combination is allowable, but we should ask, is any combination of these preferable? I guess it depends on who you ask. I'm not going to weigh in with my own thoughts, but I will share thoughts of a couple others. Father Bendit Groeschel, the founder of the Franciscan Friars of the Renewal and a regular on EWTN, once claimed, the experiment of giving communion to the hand has been a disaster. And staying with the Franciscans, one of the most Eucharistic saints was St. Francis of Assisi. His devotion to the Eucharist was so strong that he famously refused the request to pursue the priesthood for knowing he was unworthy to handle so sacred a gift as the Eucharistic body of our Lord. His biographer, Thomas of Solano told how Francis would frequently kiss the hands of the priests he met in honor of their consecration, allowing them to handle the sacred host. And St. Francis related that if he were to see both an angel from heaven and a poor parish priest, he would first honor the priest, due to their special consecration, setting them apart which allowed them to handle the body and blood of Jesus. One thing you do not need consecrated hands for is to click subscribe to Catholic History Trek, or to leave a rating and review. Gloria Patri et Filio et Spiritui Sancto, Sicuterat in Principio et Nunc et Semper, et in Saecula Saeculorum. Amen. Thank you for listening to Catholic History Trek. You can reach us at catholichistorytrek at gmail.com.